Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today I have with me Fraser Rice, he's the regional director of Pendleton Square Trust and the author and podcast host of Wealth Actually. We know about a thousand of the same people and (laughs) track in very similar circles. And this will be a fun conversation oriented towards family offices and private companies. Let's jump right into it. Okay, great. Given the work that you're doing with Pendleton, a conversation that I've been hearing a lot from other families is this concept of in-country migration to certain jurisdictions that are more favorable from a tax perspective, from a business perspective, and from this private trust company perspective. What does that all mean? And how does your firm work with these type of families? Sure. Well, lots going on there. And so as you sort of set out, there are sometimes different things that are good about jurisdictions versus others. And it kind of depends what the family is looking for in terms of selecting a jurisdiction. We often hear about, you know, sort of the tax tail wagging the dog. Sometimes it's a business regulatory requirement that requires a choice of a jurisdiction. And then other times it's where families just kind of end up. And so where Pendleton is interesting, and for your listeners, we are a Tennessee-based trust company. And Tennessee has a lot of interesting laws sort of comparatively on a national basis, but then some different things that are interesting for international families. What ends up happening and where I see it the most, and so I I can't really put myself out as a big international tax expert, but when families, international families in particular, usually where it comes to the fore is when their kids get sent to school here in the States. They go to boarding school or they go to college, and then oftentimes they they start work. Uh, Maybe that's in New York or DC or LA or wherever they've gone to school and they start, you know, they go to work and and then all of a sudden they start having families and the United States becomes much more of an interesting and more permanent component of their living arrangement. And that's when as the lifestyle has started to become dominant in the thinking of these families and the different, let's call it beneficiaries within a generation of these families, that's where the planning really kicks in. So then the key is, okay, if a family is used to dealing with a home jurisdiction and maybe a home tax situs, how does that apply to the jurisdiction in which some of the kids are living? And so what we try to do is help to advise slash be part of the solution for those people who are becoming more Americanized so that they can take advantage of living in the United States while limiting their tax liability 
or maybe their business regulatory liability as far as doing business is concerned. So that's sort of the, that's sort of level one. And then maybe you know on the private trust company side of things. So private trust companies, for those who aren't well versed in them, essentially are, I guess I would call them family owned or family controlled structures that provide the fiduciary decision making and implementation around wealth and wealth structuring. Different from, say, a corporate trust company where there is a real sort of arm's length transaction where that corporate trust company is hired to act as a fiduciary. A private trust company, the family is really assuming more of those fiduciary responsibilities. Where they come into come into prominence, at least where we see that, is usually it comes into the fore when the family wants additional control over the fiduciary responsibility over the assets of the family, because many times there can be conflicts with the corporate trustee. They have different things that they need to worry about from a risk perspective. That can be a real issue as it relates to a family business or something that a corporate trust company might not understand real well, like say jewelry or cryptocurrency or something like that. The other area where families like to maintain more control is around the discretionary distribution process amongst the beneficiaries. A corporate beneficiary is going to usually have a very well-defined process that helps them to make the distributions in accordance with the trust documents. And then we're silent where they have a lot of documentation around the discretion used to make distributions to beneficiaries. A private trust company sort of takes those concepts and moves those decisions into individuals and people that are trusted within the family and family members oftentimes so that there's a little bit more flexibility on that side. So it's a way to get the flexibility that one wants in a trust company setting while also sometimes from a jurisdictional choice perspective, getting the law that you want, whether from a flexibility standpoint or a tax advantage standpoint, that's where we see a lot of that. And in my experience, this rise of allocation to alternatives and private equity has dovetailed really nicely with some of these private trust company offerings, because oftentimes a corporate trustee will have real issues with some of the concentration or underlying assets that many of these families have today. Are you seeing that play out on your end as well? 100%. And I think it's useful to take a step back and see why corporate trustees are worried about the assets. So there's a famous case involving the Kodak Wealth family in upstate New York. And essentially, the trust document said that they were the corporate trustee was allowed to hold Kodak stock. And at the time, it seemed like an amazing investment. Time said otherwise. And what ended up happening is it went from uh, $90 a share down to two. And the beneficiaries complained and sued. And they sued the corporate trustee and said, it said this in the document, but you as corporate trustee needed to be more on top of things and to exercise a bit more of a prudent investor approach to concentrations. And they won. So corporate trustees saw that case and said, all right, we do not like concentrations one bit. If we are forced to take them, we are going to take them in areas that we understand very, very well. So things like owning real estate, or you know a family business like a family tire business or something like that. JP Morgan is going to look at that and be like, uh, I don't know, I don't get it. And they want you to diversify away from that as quickly as possible. So private trust companies and even at a different level, sort of the directed trustee model where the investment decision is set aside to a group of people that the families choose that is different from the corporate trustees function of administering the trust or participating on the distribution side of things. That's where modern trust in the states and wealth planning law is going. Those areas where you can delegate decisions to experts in the field, that's what families, especially wealthy families who are getting involved, not only you know in real estate or private equity, things in which they have an edge, which they don't really need sort of a bank or a larger corporate trustee's opinion on how they want to invest things. That's the flexibility they want. So taking that flexibility and mixing it with the rigidity of the jurisdictional law that they have for the tax savings or the dynasty provisions or the flexibility, that's where the world is right now from an estate planning perspective and a structuring perspective for really large families. And when I first got into this world, it seemed like it was all South Dakota, Nevada, New Hampshire, but Many other states have thrown their hat in the ring 
in an effort to attract some of these families and some of this capital to allocate to their jurisdictions. Can you talk a little bit about what Tennessee has done and sure. the work that you do within my you know, home state? Yeah. So basically, the interesting thing is, you know, most people sort of equate, as you said, Delaware, South Dakota, Nevada is sort of the big boys on the block. Alaska sort of came in, I guess they may have been the first, but the geography has made them, you know, a, a, a bit of a move to, you know, to put your money there. But other states have taken a look at that and said, okay, the flexibility issues, being able to have that directed trust statute where you can bifurcate these different functions to the experts that you'd like, that isn't really that controversial, I don't think, in terms of a development of law. The days when one person or one bank can do everything well and that it's going to be there forever, I think people look at that and say, well, individuals get old and tired and and lose a step or they die or they don't want to be involved anymore. And then corporate trustees, oftentimes there's the big banks, you know, the idea that they're going to be there for a hundred years. I think the last 20 years has really sort of poked a hole in that where you've seen all these different mergers and acquisitions and the turnover and staff and so on is a lot different on that front. People want flexibility on those types of things. So then the two areas that become very compelling to a lot of different families no matter what state or country they come from, is the zero income tax capability. And so the states that we mentioned, a lot of them are very well tax advantaged, and Tennessee is among them. The other part that has sort of grown up around all this is the concept of asset protection. And I put this in sort of the self-settled asset protection world, where the idea that you can set up trusts that make it more difficult for creditors to attach to the assets if the problem develops or if that person gets sued, et cetera. Those are the two areas where things are becoming much more interesting for families as they worry about, you know, not only sort of shielding assets away from taxes, but from other creditors as well. Tennessee in particular has been very, I'd say, sort of aggressive over the last 10 or 15 years, robust direction and dynasty types of language uh, that allow trusts to persist for a long time and allow for the delegation of those different functions. The asset protection language is extremely strong compared to the other jurisdictions, and it's a zero income tax state. So there is a real potential arbitrage with states that are charging income taxes at the trust level. So we got right into it. (laughs) And that was a (laughs) lot of information, which is super helpful. But if somebody listening understands like a quarter of what you just said, Mm -hmm. can we maybe take a step back? And in your opinion and experience, what is the fact pattern or what is the profile of family in terms of size, holdings, complexity, where they need to engage with a firm like yours to explore starting one of these entities? Because it is a lot of work. There are costs associated with it. When does it make sense to invite you to the kitchen table and really flesh this out? Well, so I would say for any family that is having an intergenerational wealth discussion. So let's start with that and say, okay, do you have enough wealth or assets that you're not really worried about retirement? That's fully funded. You're worried about what's being left to the next generation or what's being left to your philanthropies. If you are in that world and you have more than enough assets that you are going to be spending during your lifetime, that's sort of the first hurdle I would talk about. A second hurdle, even if you aren't necessarily in that world, is if you are facing significant creditors. And by that, I would say I would sort of put that in as, from an example standpoint, say an anesthesiologist who is very likely to be sued over the course of their careers. And they need to have a pattern of asset protection such that they are protected in case something goes wrong and that their wealth doesn't go from, say, $5 million down to one, which would be a very significant move backward in lifestyle. So those are the two areas where I would start and say, do you have asset protection issues? And also, do you have intergenerational wealth issues? Are you thinking about the next generation and the generation beyond that? Intergenerational wealth issue. Another area where I would say you you definitely qualify for thinking about these things is if you think you have an estate tax problem. As of right now, the estate tax exemption is $11.7 million per person, and it'll be $12 million next year. So if a married couple had a net worth of, say, $20 to $25 million, I think the concept of, of thinking about trusts and structure 
and putting some guidelines around how that wealth is used by the next generation, I think that's a good numerical barometer for just general inter, intergenerational estate planning. I would also point out that at different states, that number, that 11.7 number can be significantly less. In New York, at around $6 million, you, have, you face a potential very very penal estate tax cliff at the state level, where if you if your wealth creeps over that $6 million level, that can create a $200,000 liability by taxing your wealth going back to dollar zero. So I would say, you know, from a dollar perspective, I think if you're in kind of that as a rule of thumb, if you're paying estate taxes or have some sort of liability, that's a good time to be thinking about trust structure. And that, that doesn't even get into this case of, say, special needs kids or things like that, where they, 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 need, they need a fiduciary to be able to steward the wealth to make sure that they're taken care of in case there's no one there for them. And for your first <laughs> number of comments, I love the juxtaposition of you being based in New York. Right. And not even New York State, New York City. I'm a native New Yorker, greatest city in the world. Not the friendliest place in terms of taxes. So you, you can... You can feel the pain and you probably have, I would assume, a lot of clients right now. We're entering into a confusing tax landscape. There's been a lot of legislation proposed, passed, in the process of being passed as we record this. What are you hearing from your clients in terms of the worries about taxes and how are you advising them given it's a shifting landscape? Well, so the advice around the the shifting legislative landscape is extremely difficult. On one hand, we had the reduction in effectiveness of some of our gizmos, the grats and idgits. And for your listeners, these are grantor trusts that allow the shifting of the growth of assets outside of one's estate. We've had the concept of a wealth tax where people might be, you know, in this case, billionaires taxed at on their unrealized gains. And again, going the other way, and the thing that has just been passed by the House as we're recording is the reintroduction of the salt tax uh, cap, which allows for the deduction of state and local taxes, which positively affects people in states like New York and California. So the bigger issue is how do you deal with all that? I would say you take the known knowns that you have, which is that $11.7 million estate tax exemption. You have low interest rates, which allow for the increased effectiveness of a lot of planning vehicles that we use. And basically use those two things and the concept that the tactics that we have been using up until now seem like they're going to be grandfathered. So if you can get them in place, say, before the end of the year or whenever the legislation is going to happen, you're taking advantage of things at their maximum effectiveness right now. The other concept is that it's very likely that taxes will go up next year. So anything that you can do between now and the end of the year, you're probably going to get a little bit of leverage off of that compared to what happens next year if you did the same transaction. Now, I think the bigger issue is that I think there is a cultural shift in the way taxation is being viewed in this country. And so this is a multi-year concept, which is the idea that there were a lot of different things put out there, the wealth tax in particular, where the idea of taxing unrealized wealth, unrealized gains in wealth, the idea of the IRS potentially requiring $600 transactions to be reported by financial institutions, that to me is a little bit of an attack on 1099 wealth. For those people who don't have W-2 income and they have assets that they report on 1099 and investments, that seemed to be a very receptive, that got a lot of play with many receptive audiences. It hasn't really gotten any traction anywhere. And then the concept of, let's call it re-strengthened IRS, where many more billions of dollars are going to be put back into the agency to audit different folks. I look at that and say, okay, you know what? I, I think that the days of kind of a loosey-goosey IRS and a more permissive environment around aggressive planning, I think those days are are coming to an end. If not necessarily this year, then I think just thematically over the course of the next few years, I think there's going to be a lot of impetus put around those types of initiatives. And if I'm a wealthy family and I'm talking to them, I'm saying, you know what, this is a good time to really 
understand what you're trying to do and do well and take a long-term approach with the idea that the U.S. is going to need to fund a lot of different spending initiatives that are being put forward. And you as a wealthy family are going to be in the crosshairs of that and to plan accordingly. And to wit, which is to say, if right now is the best estate tax planning and income tax planning that we're going to see for a while, take advantage of the tools that you have at your disposal because they may not be there in the future. Fundamentally, when you look at the the budget of the federal government, you have two options, right? This isn't groundbreaking. You can spend less or make more. Clearly, given the legislation that's moving through Congress, we are going to keep spending more. And so when you talk about revenue, it's going to be tax-driven revenue. And so I agree with you, no matter who is kind of running the show in D.C., there's going to have to be an increase in taxes and or enforcement of existing policies on the books. And so I completely agree with you. And it's interesting to see these ProPublica you know, exposés being thrown out and the, the vitriol around them, because you and I, after living in this world for the last 10 years, we understand that these private trust companies, these you know, mechanisms that wealthy families use to leverage assets, illiquid assets, et cetera, have been things that people have been doing for a very long time. And if and anybody in DC had bothered to go to a family office conference over the last 20 years, they would have realized <laughs> that, I mean, these are tools and mechanisms perfectly legal that have been utilized for quite some time, just maybe it wasn't in the public sphere like they are today. So I agree with all those sentiments. Yeah. And, and you know, we're talking about concepts that are tried and true. They're legal, you know, the ProPublica or the Panama Papers, you know, there are bad actors out there and I'm not one to say that they shouldn't be punished at all. They should be. But for, you know, concepts that are out there that are tried and true and that are sort of well-worn law and so on, I, I'm sort of sanguine on the whole notion that, that these things are under attack. I, I think where ProPublica Pro and some of these other groups fail in their messaging is that, first of all, you're dealing with very complicated concepts that when they message them, I think they border on this somewhat misleading in the way they talk about how people are avoiding tax versus evading tax. I think they try to cast it as an evading discussion, which is you are in the world of the illegal. Whereas if you're in tax avoidance, that is something that all Americans have the ability to take advantage of. The rules are written and for a reason. And to the extent you're able to use them, people up and down the income spectrum do. I just hope that what I hope, and, I, and unfortunately, this budget process has completely gone against this, is the idea that tax policy is well thought through. And as we see different mechanisms thrown up against the wall to see if they stick, it's not really thought through how this has a certain consistent logic to it. So that all not only can people follow the law in a in an efficient manner, but people can believe that the policy is in place for a logical reason. And I think we're getting away from that as it gets more and more politicized. So then this begs the question, how concerned are you about true regulatory oversight of family offices? So I think that, am I concerned about it? No, because I think that family offices will adjust and adapt, international ones especially. International ones will put their family office in the environment where they are comfortable with the level of regulation. Statewide and stateside, I'd say that I'm not that concerned about it for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think at the state level, there is enough regulation for those people who have to register that increasing that level of rigor isn't going to really sort of capture any more revenue or uncover any more bad situations. For those states that don't have sort of official registration, I believe South Dakota and Wyoming or and maybe Nevada are three that don't. I think they are in the in their own self-interest. They don't want to be harboring money launderers or bad actors or anything like that. And I think there will be a, a sea change around those types of things. The fact of the matter is, is that any transaction that's going through the United States is getting some level of scrutiny, if only through FinCEN and the OCC and the regular banking system. And to that end, I think that while it's politically interesting to say, oh, we're going after you know drug cartels and if they use South Dakota or whatever as a mechanism of using the U.S. banking laws to launder money or do whatever they want to do with it, I think that's less of an issue than is painted in the public eye. 
But so that, and I'm, I'm not super worried about it, but, and I think the legislation to cause something to happen affects so few numbers of people that it's sort of outside the scope of what Congress is going to be worried about. So what does worry you right now? Data, talent, cybersecurity? Cybersecurity is a massive worry. I don't think we've seen the 9-11 of cybersecurity where a significant institution has been taken down. And I worry that, for instance, the insurance around cybersecurity is priced in such a way that they have not had a gigantic payout yet. And so I could see envision some big incident happening and causing a real ripple in the different insurance markets that cover a lot of the vendors that support financial institutions and family offices, et cetera. And that suddenly the cost of doing business in ways that we consider normal now escalate in a very rapid way. So that's a concern and it's something I'm not a programmer or anything like that, but I definitely, I check my statements or my bank accounts every week or every few weeks just to make sure there isn't anything untoward there. I remember the story. I came back from a trip in Europe and this had to be good eight or 10 years ago, maybe even more. And I looked at my bank statement and I was relieved of about $25,000 of my money. Now my bank didn't even blink, think twice. They they covered it. I worry about an environment where that phone call is not quite so automatic in the future. Yeah. We're not going to go through a bunch of anecdotes, but we've all heard the horror stories of somebody hacking into an email, seeing that transaction or a big transaction is occurring, sending an e- a phishing email. You know, The funder, the family office, the investor says, okay, send me the wire instructions. And then boom, $250,000, $500,000 is gone. And you know, that those monies can never be repatriated. It is what I do find a more compelling conversation to be is the fact that many of these families are investing into cybersecurity firms, AI firms, machine learning firms, fintech firms, but they're not utilizing those same vendors for their own purposes. It's like the uh, cobbler who has lousy shoes and they're saying, oh, you know, I'm going to make money on it. And then suddenly, you know, something happens where their underlying systems are broken because they didn't take their own advice or didn't take the advice of the people they're invested in. It's a big problem. And it's one that, you know, as you get many levels of abstraction away from how things work, and that's where predators get you. They, They know how to get into the systems. They can deny you service. They can hijack you that way. There are all sorts of ways to go about it. And I'm, I'm not perfect in this by any stretch, but I definitely, I try to keep on top of it as much as I can because just personally, it's just really annoying. And if it's enterprise wide or you're dealing with gigantic numbers, sums of money, that gets ugly very quickly and ultimately very expensive. And when people talk about the expense of running a single family office today, it's interesting because they often talk about the talent and just the fees, et cetera. But more and more so, I'm convinced that it's this data security, cybersecurity issue, much like a small community bank or regional bank. These costs are too much to bear for for the assets under management, which is why I believe you'll see more and more groups move towards a multifamily office RIA type platform where they can share that cost across multiple clients. Do you agree? Totally agree. And to analogize it even more, I think successful family offices, the ones I run across, sort of at root, they are, when done well, they have an accounting firm spine, meaning they have a very clear idea of what they have, what their responsibilities are are at at a tax level, and they know who is affected, both at the corporate level and at the beneficiary level. So that accounting firm spine is important. And that does not necessarily conflate to sort of good cybersecurity practice. So you have a, your comment was really good in saying, you know what, you really, family office should be thinking a little bit, not only from an accounting firm perspective or from an investment management perspective, but from that, that kind of regional bank perspective, because that's the level of attack that they have to be ready for. I, I've learned something from this podcast right now. I'm going to incorporate that somewhere. So thank you. But it really is that level of danger and scale of attack that I think is going to become more important. And as you say, those costs go up as you start to solve for all of these different problems and functions. And that's where offices getting together and sharing those costs starts to make a little bit more sense. 
it was one of these comments made by the keynote that family offices, which I know is a term that that can apply to many different types of entities, but we are currently and will continue to be the number one prospect of attack for cyber criminals for exactly all these reasons that we're outlining. They typically don't have a standard operating procedure. You know, they don't verbally confirm wires. They have individuals and and family members and professionals spread across multiple jurisdictions, time zones. They're often using Gmail or Outlook. So all of these things combined make them really easy prey. And they're also transacting all the time, right? Imagine the number of ACHs or wire transfers happening within some of these larger families. There's a lot there and it's hard to keep up with in real time. And so I think we'll continue to see more and more of these type of conversations happening. And it's going to be harder and harder to track for some of these kind of smaller or medium-sized families. Well, and the tough part too is a family office oftentimes with the family culture around it, it can be not formal enough in terms of governance and security and so on. And you know, when you're dealing with your brother or sister or cousin or something like that, and it's, oh yeah, I'll send the wire, no big deal. That's different than if you have to go through a proper bank where, you know, it may be annoying, but you know, they have checkpoints and two levels of authentication and things like that. The professionalization of a family office is important, not just for visual and optics purposes, but it's really kind of good professional hygiene because you know when your name's out there you are you are in the sights of various bad elements no matter what your geography is this lends itself to a question that I've been asking a lot of people recently within this space what are you hearing from your end with your clients and ultra high net worth individuals or, or families but this tension between understanding that you now need to be a media company if you want best talent best deal flow best ideas but also this inherent tendency or desire to be under the radar or discreet. How are you seeing that play out conversations behind closed doors with other families and individuals? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's a natural tension. And so that much like if you've seen one family office, you've seen one family office, that bromide. If you've seen one view toward publicity or being out there, it's going to change, I think, depending on the situation for for different families. I think that the knee-jerk reaction in a lot of these is to be under the radar as much as possible. A lot of that has to do with creditor protection, sort of the traditional ideas of you know, not being a target as much as possible, maintaining competitive edge in the different investment worlds that they live in, et cetera. The fact of the matter, though, is that as the next generations are coming online, they are they are becoming indoctrinated in a culture of social media where that is becoming a bigger part of their identity. And interestingly, I think it's also becoming a bigger source of deals and a bigger source of potential opportunity for talent, et cetera. And so that's a natural tension that a lot of families are worried about. I will say it is an example of the weird juxtaposition between the two, uh, sort of an interesting cottage industry that's developing for family office participants, especially, is the idea of having social media audits where various family members, you know, they they essentially hire a private detective or somebody close to that and they go and kind of look at what's out there and they say where they think things are going to be where there could be areas of concern either from a publicity standpoint or from a security standpoint. You know, that the famous case is Kim Kardashian saying exactly what hotel room she was in Paris. And then a gang came and stole $45 million worth of jewelry or something like that. And so there's professionalization that's going on in that world, all of which is this sort of broth of opportunity and danger that I think is uncomfortable for a lot of different families that maybe made their wealth in very quiet ways, but understand that if they're going to adapt and survive in the culture going forward, that that they're going to have to incorporate and deal with this new type of exposure that they maybe didn't have before. Which leads me to my next topic, which is how are families, individuals dealing with this new type of asset class, crypto, NFTs, fractionalization and digitalization of real assets? What are best practices in your opinions in terms of asset allocation, investment policy standards around this 
kind of volatile, but clearly burgeoning area of interest? Sure. I mean, I'm not in the business of giving investment advice, so I'm clearly qualified to talk about this, <laughs> I guess. That think makes you perfect for this. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. So I think you know a lot of standard concepts continue to apply. I think by and large, some would say this is tired, but it's not. You know, The idea of having an investment policy statement and you know, for let's call it forget crypto for a second. Let's just call it speculative investments. Some families are going to assign a percentage to those investments, whether it's five percent or ten percent, or maybe they're comfortable going up to fifty percent or something like that. So having a larger strategy around the wealth, I think, is the first step. So that it, you know, you don't hear you know, Bitcoin did this or Ethereum did that, or the constitution's on sale here or something like that. And all of a sudden you whip out your checkbook because it sounds interesting and there's a fear of missing out and that that whipsaws your overall strategy. Having that process around how not only investment deals, but even investment ideas are sourced and then vetted, I think is really the important part of maintaining dis- discipline around the investment decision. So that's sort of the the larger area. So if we dive into crypto and NFTs, I think the first part is to certainly learn as much as possible about it. From the crypto perspective, you know, I think the idea that it grew out of the Satoshi white paper that was trying to solve for a more frictionless transfer of value in exchange for model train parts from Japan. And now that it's turned into this sort of investment thesis, you know, there's a lot to unpack there. And then there's a lot of technology underneath it that I think from an understanding perspective, it's difficult to deal with oneself. I would sort of harken back to some simple principles. Number one, understand exactly what you own and what that means. Then I would understand how it is custodied and how you access it, et cetera. And if you don't understand how it's custodied, you just shouldn't be playing in the space or you should wait for an ETF to come out to give you, I would call it simple exposure. Because if you don't understand how this stuff works, then you really fall prey to, you don't understand, you won't understand why value goes up or down. You're not going to be able to trade it with any sense of intelligence. But then you're also, you know, putting yourself at harm's risk of a Mt. Gox situation where people kept their cryptocurrency at a hot exchange. And then all of a sudden it folded and the cryptocurrency evaporated. No one had their private keys or gave the private keys off and it's gone. And so now you're a creditor in a suit against Mt. Gox, hoping that somebody has some money somewhere that you can get 10 cents on the dollar for what you had at the time. At the NFT level, which I think is really interesting, I think that blockchain component is particularly interesting in terms of taking divisible rights and transferring them across new generations of owners. And so I I, I look at that with excitement and interest. Again, I would say, really understand what you own. I had someone come to me and say, oh, I'm going to put six figures toward an NFT. What do you think? So in this particular transaction, they were going to get a JPEG, so an electronic file of an image. It was going to be housed at what I would describe as a relatively fly-by-night corporate entity. And they were going to have what I would call a note from mom on the blockchain that said they owned number one of 15 of these things. And they had zero interest in the copyright of that image. And to me, you know, so the technical aspects, you know, not having the actual image in hand scared me. The blockchain sort of certificate of authenticity of what you own was, okay, interesting, one of 15, there's something you could prove and go on. That connoted some level of scarcity to me. But not having any control of the, pro- of the copyright, I think, is a big whiff because if that's left in somebody else's hands, they can duplicate whatever they want. They can create as many and distribute as widely as they like. And that theoretically could destroy the value of your theoretically scarce asset. I would rather have control over that so that I knew exactly where that where that image was going, even if I didn't own the specific NFT associated with it. It's just one aspect of value and kind of how intellectual property gets can get a little wonky at times. Do you think the true regulation of the crypto space is inevitable? Yes, I do. I think that the concept of this decentralization of the sort of mechanics of cryptocurrency, that won't quite go away. But I think different governments have too much of a vested interest in maintaining control over their sort of country currency-based fiat. And that if you cede control of the medium of exchange to sort of this amorphous 
decision-making pattern, I don't think that works politically for a lot of countries. Now, that would argue for maybe stable coins or some other form that I can't really think of at the moment. But at the end of the day, I think that the US is interested in, in having control over the dollar. China is interested in having control over the yuan, et cetera, et cetera. I think Bitcoin and Ethereum and other mechanisms of exchange are interesting, but I think these different governments are going to want to have a handle over that long term. Let's kind of tighten it back up as we near the end of this conversation, because we've gone down a bunch of <laughs> rabbit holes, which is fun. Looking back on your career and your experience, what is the fact pattern or common characteristics that you see lead to successful multi-generational families? The big one, I think, is early and substantive communication amongst and between the family members. I think when emotional baggage is allowed to pile up or there is relative lack of shared decision-making around money or lack of education around money, that ultimately creates this horrible multiplier when what I would describe as real problems happen, which is the company goes goes wrong or somebody gets divorced or you know Venezuela confiscates the oil wells that you used to own or something like that. If you don't have the ability to communicate amongst and between the important family members and other constituents within that framework, I think that just exacerbates the many challenges that are out there that kind of feed the shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves phenomenon. And I think of it more in terms of this sort of scary equation that families are always fighting, which is that as the families get older and bigger, the liabilities increase geometrically, while the assets can really only expect to increase linearly. And so that gap is what you're trying to tighten over time. And if you don't communicate well, I think it just exacerbates that gap and makes it wider. Yeah, I talk about this a lot. And I think this shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves saying is an old saw and not totally accurate. And maybe because I am a member of G2, but to your point, if you break it down, you've got a 4% spend rate, 2% inflation, and you're, you're growing exponentially as a family, which families tend to do, your return profile gets really aggressive really quickly to maintain your quality of life. Yeah, no it's question just, about it. It's just, I mean, you can't knock out 12% annual returns without taking some type of risk and it doesn't always work. The math is very hard, in my opinion. I don't think it's a function of a black sheep phenomenon. I mean, certainly there is part of that, but it's just fundamental return analysis. It's really challenging. Yeah, no, and we're saying the same thing. I think the liabilities, they do increase geometrically. And so as you get to G2 and G3, you know, you're not just adding two kids. Those kids usually get married and then they have two of their own and then they get married. And so just by numbers, you're having more people who are used to a particular spend rate. And so then you start converting from 4% to actual dollars spent for things like educations and housing and stuff like that. And you add onto that inflation, that's the geometric part of the liabilities increasing. And so if the assets don't keep up with that, then that's the scary part of the second part of the shirt sleeves part. And I guess that's why it's an old saw, even if it's not necessarily, it doesn't, it doesn't apply universally, that's for sure, but it's out there and it's something to be worried about for a lot of families. How often do you have a conversation with somebody convincing them not to start a family office? Well, I work for a trust company, so I probably have a... <laughs> but the it goes back to what we were talking about before. I think the thing is, I'm not really trying to convince them not to start one. I'm trying to convince them to understand what functions they want to keep in-house and what they want to delegate. There are, you know, doing the, you know, the bill pay and transfer money in and out and the tax reporting and some of those types of things, eh, you know, that can be very tedious work. And that's something that many people who are enjoying the wealth, they don't want to spend the serious amount of time that it takes to do that stuff correctly. Many times, I, you know, people want to stay involved in the investment management or the asset allocation part because it's more fun. They're in front of deals. They're meeting cool people and going to nice, nice places. The investments themselves can be really interesting and they like to keep that part. And then the other part too is, you know, that sort of how you distribute the assets and how you make sure uh, when you're interacting with the rest of your family, you know, how those decisions happen. And when you have to be unpopular for some reason, is there a mechanism in place to do that stuff? So when you try to pull all of that in-house, I think the usual bromide is it's anywhere from a 2 to 5% drag on assets. 
I just try to say, look, you know, there are ways to do that that are an efficient use where you're doing the things that you want to do, but you don't necessarily have to have the HR issues or, you know, renting a space to have everybody show up and all that. And then you can get the benefit of flexibility and the ability to hire and fire a little bit more easily, I'd say, than having to deal with someone who works very closely in-house and and for whom you're responsible for everything that that happens in that world. But and so that's where you know a family office can be just an investment office. And for some people, that's great. Some people don't want to do that. They delegate that part out too, and they just want to, you know, sort of exist or do, go on with their life. And in a very long-winded way of saying that the discussion is really don't set one up. It's staff what you want correctly and understand the difference between employing them directly and not employing them directly. It was an inartful question, but you answered it the way I hoped you would, which is what I often tell people when we have this conversation is, what are you solving for? And if you just want to save a family office for the ego trip and on the golf course, go for it. But just have it be an investment LLC because a true family office, it's a small business. You probably have to have 250 to 500 million of AUM to make it to do it right. And that number is only going up, you know, 3x, 4x inflation, in my opinion. And it's a lot of work. And if you had a liquidity event, do you want another job? Because this is going to be a full time gig. And it's not a function of how many zeros you have. It's really, again, what are you solving for? What are you trying to achieve? And it's not for everybody. And it's not a strike against you. I think now, it's almost expected that everyone does it. And I just see a lot of people fail because they don't have realistic expectations of what it's going to be like day to day or year over year. I couldn't agree more with that. I, I think from an ego perspective, I wouldn't even bother having the LLC, frankly. I, I mean, you need one to hold private assets and stuff like that, but you know, just have the business card. You know, or I see this in philanthropy a lot too. I mean, a donor advised fund can do pretty much everything that a private foundation can do with a lot less work, but some people like to have them and there are good reasons for it too. But I think you make a great point as far as just understand what you want to solve for. And if you don't get that far, if you start building these big sort of castles in the sky that you think are going to be impressive, you're going to end up tripping over yourself and worse when you get older and the next generation doesn't want to take on some of these different functions, you're going to have something complicated and annoying to dismantle. What's the best question, the most insightful question you get from people who are diligencing your firm? The best question I get is why an independent trust company? And what makes you different from the the other trust capabilities out there? So once someone sort of establishes that they're interested in Tennessee as a jurisdiction, then the idea is why us? And I like to say, you know, we we operate a little bit differently than than I'd say certain commoditized trust companies that are essentially a phone number. And, you know, if you're lucky, maybe you get a trust officer, but in essence, you're renting a mailbox. And then at the higher end, you know, sort of the larger bank trust companies that we've all kind of grown up with and that I worked for one for 16 years, ones for whom the independent trust model is not squarely in their business model. And so being a directed trustee where the assets are peculiar, where the family dynamics are crazy, but where there is no investment management happening at that directed trustee level, I think is really interesting for super wealthy families. But I think it's something that at the big banks, they're not interested in it. If they don't have the asset management, the margins aren't correct enough for them in order for it to be an engine of growth and therefore an engine in something for them to pay special attention to. And I think ultimately where that leads to is, is a very expensive offering that isn't that great. And I think Pendleton fits in the middle where we offer, we, we charge a very, I think, reasonable market rate, but it's not exorbitant, but we aren't cheap either. And that allows us to deal with nuance. It allows us to deal with tricky situations. It allows us to understand tricky assets, but it also allows us to have that generational communication so that we are sort of fostering well-prepared beneficiaries so that they are ready to receive the wealth when they're ready to get it. And that that we aren't having that confrontational relationship that sometimes happens between trustee and beneficiary. They understand the why of the estate plan and the structures when they're put in place. I think at, at other situations, that's less apparent. Final question. Will Duke win the national championships this year? Krzyzewski's last year. You're a Duke guy. They're a top yep. five team. They have good squad. You like them? You put money to work or what? 
I always put a little nickel every year just in case because it seems to work. I think they look really, really good in almost every regard. They are young. The one thing that does scare me is I don't think they have that three-point gunner. And so there are going to be certain games where they might sort of shoot themselves out by going, you know, two for 14 from three and that that'll leave some teams back in it. And they, as you get further down the pike and get into the final four and so on, that can get ugly. And if you have to come back from a deficit, if you don't have that three point weapon, that's the one part that scares me, but I absolutely think they could make it to the final four. And then after that, we'll see. Awesome. Good answer. Frazier, thanks so much for joining us. If people want to learn more about Pendleton or your book, the content you create, the podcast, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Two major ways. So I would go to PendletonSquareTrust.com to hear about the trust company. And then FraserRice.com, F-R-A-Z-E-R-R-I-C-E.com is my website. And then Wealth Actually is the book and the podcast. And you can find that on Amazon and iTunes and Spotify and all the other usual suspects. Where does the name come from, Pendleton Square? You know, it's a good idea. It's a great question. I, I don't have a good answer for that. It came from some British garrison concept. I will have to ask Betsy Brown, our founder, the origin story of Pendleton, because I, I am ashamed to say I don't have it firmly in mind. Okay. I'll be in Chattanooga soon. So I'll, I'll grab coffee with her and I'll deep dive on the genesis of the name. But I want to thank you for the time. You put out awesome content. I, I really encourage people to listen to the podcast. The stuff you post on LinkedIn is really good. Thank you for carving out some time on, on a Friday and hopefully we can you know connect in the city soon. Thrilled to do it. And thanks for having me on and happy Thanksgiving. Same to you, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review and stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 